engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello and a very festive welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology, medicine and more. I'm Julia Ravey and this week I'm joined by a panel of scientific superstars for a Christmas cracker of a show to answer all your queries and questions. In this pre-recorded episode, we're going to be answering... Does another planet Earth potentially exist? Can robots be as creative as humans? And why do deep sea creatures glow? We love to ask the experts your questions, so if you have a curious conundrum you really want to get to the bottom of, reach out and let us know so we can quench your thirst for knowledge. Before we dive into the fountain of all things science, let's meet this week's glorious panel. Season's greetings to our solar superstar, Hannah Wakeford. Hannah is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, where she researches the planets that exist beyond our solar system called exoplanets. She's the co-author of the book Bang 2, The Complete History of the Universe, and co-hosts the podcast Exocast. Hannah, there are a lot of exoplanets, but if you could visit just one, which would you choose and why? The question I have to ask first is, do I have some protective future technology spacecraft? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's go big. Okay. You've got All it. right. Then the planet that I'm going to go to is a absolutely hellish world. And it has a terrible name. It's called HD 189733B. But this planet is a Jupiter-sized planet, so 11 times the size of the Earth. It's made of hydrogen and helium. It has a permanent day side and a permanent night side, winds of over 5,000 miles per hour, and clouds that are made of liquid glass. But it contains so much amazing physics, chemistry, and dynamics of these planetary atmospheres we're studying. I just want to see it in action. That sounds Uh, exciting and also completely terrifying. We are also joined by molecular biologist and science educator extraordinaire Raven Baxter. Raven is the director of diversity initiatives at UCI School of Biological Sciences in California and also shares her skills through her online platforms as Raven the Science Maven using an ingenious method of teaching science, music. Raven, what is your favorite science song and why? You know, I just recorded a song uh, for Ada to a scientist for kids, and it's called Brainstorm. And I really like that song. It gets stuck in your head, first of all. But I also love the idea that science is everywhere and inspiring kids to just look around them and find something to be curious about and go exploring. And so that's right now, that's my favorite song. (laughs) I love that one. Our resident expert in artificial intelligence is Beth Singler. Beth is a junior research fellow in artificial intelligence at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge, exploring how the rise of intelligent machines are impacting us and our behavior. In your words, Beth, you think about what we think about machines that might think. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's my short tweet version of what I do. <laughs> and what does that mean? 
basically, uh, as an anthropologist, I'm paying attention to people's conversations and interactions with AI and robots, whether they are actually literally interacting with those things or they just think that they are because we have so many different imaginaries of what AI and robots could be. So at the end of the day, it's an excuse to sit and read a lot of science fiction. Oh, I am absolutely there for that. And last but not least, we have a real life deep sea explorer, Diva Amen. Diva has a PhD in ocean and earth sciences and now goes on expeditions to explore the life that lives beneath the surfaces of our oceans. Diva also is a science communicator and her latest deep sea adventures have been captured in the Welcome to Earth documentary series where she and five other explorers accompany Will Smith to some of the most fascinating places on our planet. Diva, how much of our oceans have we still got to explore? Well, it depends on your definition of explorers. Um, we could mean, you know, make maps or we could mean actually see with our own eyes. And if we're going with the latter, it's far less than 1% has ever been seen, which is just staggering when you think about the fact that this is our own planet we're talking about. So much left to explore. So first things first, we like to start these shows with a bit of intrigue, a bit of mystery. And with the holiday season just around the corner, I may have sprinkled in a little bit of festiveness. The aim of the game is to guess who or what is making our mystery sound. Like that present under the tree that you have absolutely no idea what it is. Throughout the show, we will be giving you little clues to help you unwrap and eventually reveal the wonderful gift inside. So for you listening at home, see how many clues it takes for you to guess our guest of honour and if you can beat the team. So without further ado, here is your first clue. Is that how it's supposed to sound? <laughs> what are we thinking? Let's see. What could that be, Beth? Do you think you know? I don't know. I mean, perhaps it's my my interest, but it sounds a bit like a sci-fi laser or a spring. Oh. Not really sure. Well, we'll be taking off another layer later in the show. So firstly, we're going to come over to Hannah. NASA have recently blasted off a spacecraft called DART to collide with an asteroid 6.8 million miles away from Earth. This mission aims to see if we can slow down how quickly this asteroid is orbiting around another asteroid. Hannah, how do we analyse objects like asteroids and planets that are so far away from us? That's a really good question. And it's not easy. But what we're doing is we're looking for light. That's what astronomy is. We always are just dealing with light around things. And we're seeing the reflections of light from the sun off those asteroids, or we're seeing the light that they emit themselves. Another thing that's really good about these asteroids is because they're so close to us, they move really quickly. And because they're moving really quickly, we can see that there's something moving relative to the stars, which appear static in our pictures. So if we can see this little bit of light moving through our pictures, that might be an asteroid. And what types of planets do you study? I primarily study giant planets. So these are things that are, you know, made mostly of hydrogen and helium. They don't have a surface that you would think of. They're very, very puffy. And the ones that I particularly am interested in are the ones that are really close to their stars. So they're hot as well. And when you heat up an atmosphere, you change the chemistry, you change the wind structure, and you change 
the way that that planet orbits around its star. So there's a lots of interesting things that we're trying to understand. How big of a difference does that make? And that type of planet doesn't sound like one that we could maybe like, you know, move to many years down the line. Do you think there could be another Earth out there? Well, we've been looking across the whole sky for exoplanets. We found nearly 5,000 of them now that have been confirmed as real planets orbiting other stars. And out of those planets, we think that there are hundreds and thousands of planets that are rocky, terrestrial worlds. So we know that there are rocky planets the same size as the Earth. And we know that before we even started looking for exoplanets, because we have one next door to us. It's called Venus. It is our twin sister planet. It is the same size and mass as the Earth. And it is a rocky planet. So we already knew that planets like ours were out there. But the important thing here is those little differences. We live on this lovely planet called Earth, and it is pretty nice, good temperatures, a little bit cold in the UK today. But Venus is a hellish world. It has an incredibly thick atmosphere. The temperatures on the surface are 700 degrees. You would melt and be crushed. So it's a horrible place, but they're the same thing. They're rocky planets that are roughly the same size. So what we're trying to understand about exoplanets is what are those little differences? If we find a rocky planet that is about the size of the Earth, is that really an Earth-like planet? While we spread cheer at this time of year, we're also more susceptible to the spread of many different bugs. Over the past few years, we've all been watching how the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 spreads. And Raven, we had this question come in from Paddy. Is it possible for a virus to replicate without it being inside a cell? Well, viruses need a living host to reproduce themselves because they use uh, the machinery that are inside of cells to replicate. However, they don't just exist in humans. You know, viruses can infect bacteria, plants, different kinds of animals, in addition to humans. So in that sense, they can be outside of a body, but they can't exist really without living things to use for their own destruction. (laughs) So Sean has also written in to ask about what is the line between alive and not when it comes to thinking about bacteria versus a virus? This is a debate, believe it or not. And I learned this early on in the pandemic because I, you know, said, well, viruses aren't living. And then a slew of people came through and said, well, actually, you know, some people do believe that viruses are living and they feel like our definition of what's living and non-living is nuanced in a, in a way, especially because of some things that we've learned about super viruses or mega viruses. But in my opinion, Living things are able to grow and reproduce on their own. And that is where I draw the line. And then in the UK, there's been talk that we may be one of the first countries where the virus that causes COVID-19 might move from a pandemic to an endemic. What does that mean? So endemic, in my own words, means that it is going to move from something that is more so a larger threat, an urgent threat to something that kind of exists in the background of all the other things that are already around, like the seasonal flu. And the thought is that eventually this may happen with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. However, it's still a very urgent situation right now because it is a new virus that we don't understand. And it is evolving quickly and mutating 
at a rate where we can't really afford to wait (laughs) for it to become endemic. And we definitely want to keep as many people healthy and save as many lives as possible. A recent experiment revealed a form of artificial intelligence has learned to tell the time on an analogue clock. And I mean, to me, that is that is pretty much the pinnacle of human behaviour. But Beth, <laughs> as our resident expert in artificial intelligence or AI, do you think there will come a day when we can't tell human from machine? Oh, well... I mean, that day is long gone, unfortunately, in terms of our ability to anthropomorphize robots and forms of AI that appear on social media, or we see robots as being more person-like than the technology actually allows. So underpinning that question, I think, for a lot of people is the fear about AI and robots passing for human, which comes from a lot of our science fiction accounts of where technology is going. So there's that sort of underlying anxiety in that question. But I mean, in terms of day to day interactions with technology, humans are very easily convinced that they're already dealing with something that's human like when it's not. And Ajay wrote in to ask, what is the difference between algorithms and artificial intelligence? Okay, so the term artificial intelligence is much newer than the term algorithm. You can think of algorithm like a recipe or a series of instructions. So this has appeared in our human activities in maths and science for a very long time. But in applying this towards the goal of artificial intelligence, that is the overall field and aim that people are heading towards. So we don't really get to this point in our history until about the 1950s, where a group of computer scientists got together and said, hey, let's see if we can create intelligence in this artificial way. And there's, you know, that leads into a big debate about what actually is intelligence? What kind of things are we aiming for when we describe intelligence? Is it the same thing exactly that humans have, which is so embodied and communal? You can kind of think of the algorithm as the building block towards this thing we call AI. So we pride ourselves on being really creative and think that that element of us is safe from an AI takeover but artificial intelligence technology managed to complete an unwritten symphony by Beethoven. So can our creativity be boiled down to just patterns that can be recognised? That's a really good question. I think we prioritise in our human definition of creativity things like originality and emotion, both on the creator side and the recipient of art, that we actually have have a connection with art forms. I mean, there are originality elements when AI reformats and remixes things that we see spontaneous new emergences in the imagery that's created by AI. But that's still coming from a rather large data set. So obviously, with completing Beethoven's work, Beethoven's data set would have been implanted in an AI to use that as the source code. In terms of the emotional response to AI art, some people are very into it and find it very emotionally engaging and other people find it completely just flat and cold. So again, it's that interaction with the human element where we decide whether something is artistic and whether something is genuinely creative or not. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come... What does rain look like on other planets? Can robots feel pain? 
and what are the components for writing a top hit science song. In the meantime, here is the next part of our Christmas mystery game. First, we heard this beautiful noise. Now we have another clue. And this is, earlier this year, the world's oldest one of these turned 45. Diva, what do you think it is? Now that you've just said that, I'm immediately thinking it's some kind of animal. An animal. We yeah. we shall see. We shall see. There are more clues to come. So Diva, we're on to you now. We're going deep. You've probably heard that a million yeah. times. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. this <laughs> terrible joke. <laughs> so a video was released earlier this month showing rare footage of a big fin squid over 7,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. And to me... It looked like a light bulb wearing a transparent cape with like super long daddy long leg-esque legs <laughs> just bobbing away. And it was just like amazing to hear the excitement of all the voices of the researchers watching it float by. And Diva, as you are a deep sea explorer, what is the most fascinating creature you've ever seen on your expeditions? Oh gosh, that's like the hardest <laughs> question because you you do literally see on every single expedition something that blows your mind normally something that blows your mind every single day of the expedition so if I had to choose just one and I will caveat that by saying you know there are glowing sharks there are octopus that look like Dumbo with these adorable fins on the sides of their heads there are worms that subsist only on the bones of dead whales there's all kinds of stuff down there but if I had to choose one I would say the kiwa crab also known as the yeti crab and it has another nickname, which I'll get onto, but it basically, it's a blind white crab. It lives in the deep ocean off of Antarctica. And it actually, it has a super hairy chest and super hairy arms. And it uses these hairs. It puts itself in, you know, close to the chemical rich water. And it uses these hairs to grow bacteria on the hairs. <laughs> and then when it gets hungry, it just scrapes the bacteria into its mouth. And so basically it has like arm farms, if you will. And the best part of this, or the worst part of this, depending on on how you feel about this, but about this animal is that because it has a really hairy chest, it's been nicknamed the Hoff Crab after David Hasselhoff. The crab with the hairy chest and it's almost like it's walking around with like its lunchbox on its front and it's like, come here <laughs> to the lunchbox and it's like ready to eat it. Oh my like, goodness, that is incredible. So our listener Jane asked, why is it that creatures living deep in the water glow and does that not attract predators? Right, so that's a great question. So of course, once you go past about 400 metres depth in the ocean, there is no sunlight. And how do you communicate in the absence of light? So you can either use sound or the other alternative is you make your own light. And so lots of animals in the deep sea use something called bioluminescence. That's where they're actually able to create their own light. And they do that sometimes with the help of some bacteria. Other times it's just the chemical reaction, but they do it for a variety of different reasons. It tends to be that if it's a defensive function, it's a quick sudden burst whereas if it's an offensive function then it's more glowing there's a squid that can just drop one of its arms which will glow and then the predator goes after the arm while the squid is able to get away so that's really you know one of the main ways that animals communicate in the deep sea and given the vastness of the deep ocean you know it actually provides about 96 percent of all space on earth in which life can live 
And because it's so vast, it's now thought that bioluminescence could be the most common form of communication on the planet. Wow. I love the one of it yeah. just dropping its fin. Like, I'm not here. <laughs> Bye-bye. So when predators eat glowing fish, do their stomachs glow? That's a really good question. And so a lot of animals in the deep sea actually have black stomachs because they don't want to give themselves away if they eat something that's glowing. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So it's like, I didn't eat, I didn't eat anything. I'm not here. I'm still hidden. <laughs> exactly. Hannah, my newsfeed is constantly filled with news stories like the exact date snow is due to hit the UK. And then the date comes and the, there isn't like a snowflake in sight. So if we find it hard to predict the weather on our own planet, it's hard to imagine analysing these systems on planets light years away. In your study of exoplanet atmospheres, have you found any strange weather patterns? We have been trying to look for, for weather on other planets and we found a number of different things. But I'm going to take us back to, to your setup there, because what you're talking about is something happening on a very particular scale on a, I'm a human standing in my less than one meter squared, and this thing hasn't happened in that tiny little area I occupy on an entire planet. So the scales of weather can be very, very different and result in different predictions. So at some point in the UK, we could say it's going to snow on this day, and it probably does somewhere. So it's all about scales when you talk about weather and weather and climate is a chaotic system. So small changes make big differences to it. And when we're talking about looking at alien worlds, other planets, we're talking about the big scale things. We're talking about the general circulation of the atmosphere, saying that predominantly it's cloudy in the UK. That's a large area of our planet. It's normally pretty cloudy there. And we prediction of that is much easier to do than prediction of something that's happening on a small scale. And we're looking over an entire planet when we're looking at these alien worlds. And we're saying, we think we understand what is going on across an entire planet. So it's a little bit more predictable in that sense. And does rain fall on other planets? Rain like we have here on the Earth, made of nice water droplets or ice crystals in our snow or even in our hail, we don't have that on the planets that we've studied so far because our planets are so much hotter. Their rain, their snow is actually made of things that we stand on. It's made of rocks. It's made of liquid glass. It's made of molten iron. And in fact, the rain in some of these planets will be made out of something called corundum, which is the basis of rubies and sapphires. So on another planet, Instead of clouds made of water and rain of water coming down, you have clouds made of rubies and sapphires and rain and snow of rubies and sapphires. Shower me in diamonds, like literally. Diamonds is a little bit tricky. <laughs> diamonds require way too much pressure and forming oh. clouds of them is very hard, but we can get you some rubies and sapphires. I'll take rubies and sapphires any day of the week. Let me show you how to make conversions. I'm going to flip the script and make a new version. Particles to mastermos like the particles. It don't matter which way you go. It's just long, mad zeros like Avogadro. Line them up, New York to Raven, you are an absolute pro when it comes to making science make sense and you do this using music. So what are the components of making a good science song or rap? First and foremost, if you're looking to use music to communicate science, make sure that you're having fun because when you're excited about what you're talking about, it's easier to get other people excited too. 
And then try to circle around a main idea. What is the main message that you want to communicate to your audience? Do you want them to learn everything about one thing or maybe just get some fun facts or maybe you just want to introduce them to some keywords and vocabulary that can get them on their way to like doing their own research and understanding. And then I love getting people up and dancing. So I tend to use really upbeat rap music or hip hop and things that I want to dance to so that I know like maybe someone else wants to dance to it as well. And then, you know, when you put all that together, you can make a song or you can even make a music video like I tend to do. And I especially love when people tell me that they use my songs to study for exams. That just warms my heart. And I feel like the songs definitely serve their purpose. Music is such an accessible tool that can make science you're communicating reach many ears. But we get many people writing into us about how to talk about science with people who don't really want to listen. So what are your top tips for broaching these types of conversations? In the classroom, I'm a student-centered teacher. And outside of the classroom, I'm like a community-centered science communicator. And so when I have conversations about science or where I'm, when I'm teaching science, my main goal is to have everything that's coming out of my mouth be something that lends itself to building community and trust in science. And so what that means for me is um, I don't attack people when we have opposing, you know, ideals or opinions or worldviews. I want to learn about people around me just as much in a conversation about science than in, like, you know, at the grocery store, right? I want to know, oh, what's your background? What do you believe in? What's important to you? What are your values? Those are all important things to consider when you're talking to someone about anything, but especially science, because you get to understand a little bit about how they may interpret your information. And then I always just encourage a two-way dialogue. I think sometimes science gets a bad rap for being a one-way <laughs> communication sometimes where we have facts and we say the facts and that's it. But I think like when we're having conversations, we have to remember it should always be two-way. At the last point, people always think, well, the end goal of every conversation about science where you, you're talking to someone who may not want to listen is to convince them that you're right. <laughs> and that's not necessarily always the case. Going into a conversation where you are thinking that you have to convince someone or pressure someone to believe you isn't a good situation, especially when you're trying to build trust. Those are the things that I want people to know. Yeah, the two-way side, is, it's just so important. Beth, you made a docu-series on artificial intelligence and one of the videos was on robots and pain. Is it possible for robots to feel pain? So again, like the question about creativity, it does is a question that relies on our understanding and our definition of what pain is and our human understanding of that versus what might operate and work in something that's more mechanical. So pain could be described as a response to toxic or harmful stimuli. And then in that sense, you can see how robots already do that. If there's something hazardous and they've been programmed to react to hazards, then they can react to it. If you're going to think of that as the same thing as pain, that's quite a mechanistic interpretation. I think there's aspects of pain that are more complex, especially chronic pain in humans that shapes our lived experience. It shapes our emotions and our interactions with other human beings. Again, it goes down to whether you've got a more 
broad interpretation of what pain is or quite a reductionist mechanistic interpretation that it's something about responding to something that's gone wrong. And Trish asked, will we understand human consciousness or develop artificial consciousness first? Which one will happen first? So this was this was the topic of our fourth film. And I like to joke, you know, we dealt with the whole subject of consciousness in 15 minutes. <laughs> this is something that we really didn't. We, we touched the surface of thousands of hundreds of years of human conversation around what it is to be conscious, what it is to be self-aware, overlapping with all these sort of different conceptions of what it means to be human. I think what's really interesting in the debate about conscious robots is that there is distinct groups where some people are pushing towards this as a way of learning more about human consciousness. If we could replicate something like human consciousness in AI and robots, then that would teach us something about how it works in humans. And then other people are very adamant that this is not a path we should go down that this is not something that actually AI or robots would require or need to be useful to us as human beings. And then you get into the whole sort of muddle ground of we don't really know what it is. It could turn up through the unnatural evolution of AI and robots in their iterative versions, in some ways replicating how we evolved over millions of years, but evolving over a much shorter space of time. And then that emergent property of consciousness that we don't really understand comes about and we don't necessarily know if we'll recognize it so it's quite a complex question and there's no simple answer but if you want to hear a lot of people talk about it, I'm like yes again in my fourth film we tackled this one much has changed for business owners managers and staff recently but with over 30 years experience in telecommunications award-winning independent company spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. I'm joined by four very wise scientists who come bearing gifts in the form of answering your science questions. We've got science songwriter Raven Baxter, deep ocean diver Diva Amon, exoplanet explorer Hannah Wakeford, and intelligence investigator Beth Singler. Do you hear what I hear? It's our mystery sound. We know a little bit more about this secret stocking filler. So earlier this year, the world's oldest one of these turned 45, and now we have another clue to get you guessing. The largest one of these was 10.4 metres in circumference. Raven, what do you reckon? Something naughty or something nice? Something naughty? (laughs) We will have to see at the end of the show. (laughs) Now, it wouldn't be a festive period without a bit of healthy, competitive family fun. So let's pull the cracker on our Snow It All quiz. So Raven and Beth, you are team one. And Diva and Hannah, you're team two. So you can, of course, confer. But like Santa on Christmas Eve, time is precious and of the essence. So like the Ten Lords, let's leap straight into round one. So round one is called Festive Foliage. We've got Raven and Beth first. When you go out and about at this time of year, you can't move for Christmas trees with their twinkling lights, pine needles which end up all over the floor, and that lovely fair tree smell. 
The scent of Christmas trees is generated in part by chemicals called pyonines. As well as smelling divine, these chemicals also play very important roles in helping fir trees to thrive. Which of the following do pyonines do? Do they protect trees from forest fires? Do they B, attract insects for pollination? Or do they C, keep trees cool on hot days? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thinking when they're most prevalent and what might be the key thing to get done during that period of time. So maybe it's about attracting insects for pollination, but that's just a guess. I think that is also the right answer. Okay, let's go for that. The correct answer is C. I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Pioneers are a type of terpenes, which in hot weather are thought to be released to prompt cloud seeding, which is a mechanism that modifies the weather. And pioneers are extremely flammable, so they contribute towards Christmas trees catching a light so easily. And fair trees pollinate using the wind as they don't have flowers to attract bees or other insects. Uh, Bad luck with that one. But, you know, we can make it up in the next round, I'm sure. So question two is for Diva and Hannah. Kissing under the mistletoe is a pretty obscure tradition where if two people find themselves under the white berried bearing plant, they can pucker up. The tradition of kissing under mistletoe is thought to have originated in ancient Greece due to the plant's association with fertility. But mistletoe isn't quite as romantic as we might think. Which of the following is an ugly truth about mistletoe? A. Its berries are deadly. B. Its growth can kill trees, or C, its presence reduces bird numbers. I thought it was. I thought, I thought it, was, it was A. I thought it was A. I thought they were poisonous. Yeah, yeah, same. Let's go with it. Yeah, let's go Just with that. Overthink one. it. Yeah. The answer is B. <laughs> Mistletoe is actually a semi-parasite that requires stealing nutrients from its host tree to stay alive. Excessive mistletoe growth can lead to the death of part, or in worst cases, the entire tree. It's thought the parasitic nature of mistletoe might be why it got its everlasting association, as it can stay green all winter by feeding off its host. Some mistletoes are poisonous, so should avoid being ingested, but they're not thought to be deadly. And several bird surveys have found that the loss of mistletoe from an environment reduces their numbers, hinting it's important for certain ecosystems. So round two, we can bring it back. Round two, right, deck the halls. Question one for Raven and Beth. A common tree topper decoration is a star. And during the winter months in the Northern Hemisphere, we get to spend more time looking at the stars. But in our history and today, stars have been used for navigation. One star in particular, Polaris, or the North Star, has been a guiding light due to its relatively stable position above the northern horizon all year round. But what constellation is Polaris a part of? Is it A, the Little Bear, B, Orion's Belt, or C, Draco the Dragon? I really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This is terrible. Uh... I want to say the Little Bear... The correct answer is A, the little bear. Woo! High five! Yes! Polaris is one of the seven stars which makes up the little bear constellation, which is also known as the little dipper. And although Polaris is currently our North Star, 
This may change in the future due to the slight shifting of the Earth's axis. And apparently around 2,600 years ago, when the pyramids were being built, it's thought the star Thurban, which is part of Draco the Dragon, was the North Star. Hannah, is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's accurate. It's to do with the way the Earth rotates around its axis and how that changes over time. So, you know, back in the dinosaurs, it would have been a completely different star across the sky. Ah, oh, that, that blew my mind when I found that fact out. <laughs> so question two, we're now over to Diva and Hannah again. Electric Christmas tree lights were first wrapped around a Christmas tree in 1882 by Edward H. Johnson. Although it took over 40 years for people to warm to this idea, electric lights are now a central decoration for most trees. The cells in our brains communicate using electricity, equating to roughly 20 watts of energy. If we went to town and decorated a Christmas tree with a thousand mini LED Christmas lights, how many human brains would we need to power them? Would it be A, two and three quarter brains, B, three and a half brains, or C, four and a quarter brains? It's going to be lower than you think, isn't it? I have no idea. (laughs) How many watts does it take to light a Christmas tree? Not much, I'm guessing. I'm going to go with A again. Do it. The correct answer is B. Oh my gosh. A thousand mini LED string lights use approximately 70 watts of electricity and that equates to about three and a half human brains. And if we traded these LED lights in for incandescent lights, so they're the lights that we used to use, we'd need a lot more human power. Does anyone want to guess how many brains we'd need to light up that type of tree? I'm going to ballpark and say 100. I was going to say 10. <laughs> well, sort of in the middle. It was 20. So, you know. I was going to say 10. Okay, so that's double good. Okay. And then on that note, we are on Team A, Raven and Beth, you have one point. And Hannah and Diva, we're waiting for the comeback in the final round, round three. So round three is called Merry Materials. So question one, back to Raven and Beth. Wrapping up at this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere is essential for keeping warm. And across the holiday season, we also use a lot of wrapping paper to cover our gifts. In the UK alone, it's been estimated that the amount of wrapping paper that ends up in the bin at Christmas every year is enough to cover A, half of the Great Pyramid of Giza, B, eight Empire State Buildings, or C, the town of Cambridge in the UK twice. Those are all huge areas. They are huge. I'm feeling the Cambridge connection because that's where I am. I'm going to go with with the Cambridge one. (sighs) The answer is C. Cambridge, twice. So, That's awful as well, though. Yeah, it's been <laughs> estimated in the UK we throw away around 83 square kilometres oh. of wrapping paper every Christmas. And the area of the city of Cambridge is 40.7 square kilometres. So after wrapping the ground area twice, you'd still have a little bit left over. And this amount of wrapping paper could cover almost a third of the Great Pyramid of Khufu in Giza and could cover the Empire State Building over 10 times. So we've got to make sure the paper is recyclable if we're going to use it. Last question, right? Hannah and Diva, we're going to bring it back. Santa's workshop is in the North Pole and he and his helpers are busy making toys all year round. Aside from all the materials required to make gifts, the glaciers and icebergs in the Arctic are made of frozen fresh water. 
how much of the world's fresh water as a percentage is held in these structures? Is it A, 20%, B, 30% or C, 40%? Okay, well, none of those I thought. I thought about three quarters of the world's fresh water was held in glaciers, but you're talking very specifically about the Arctic. So it's only Arctic glaciers and icebergs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're talking about percentage of fresh water. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that three quarters of fresh water is held in glaciers, but then the Arctic, what percentage of glaciers are in the Arctic? I mean, I would say 20 or 30 then, given what you've just said. I wouldn't say 40. Okay. We've lost already. They've already beaten well, I know, us. We I just know. need one point. <laughs> <laughs> One point. Do you want to? I mean, I'm in. Do you want to do middle ground or do you want to do little middle ground? Okay, middle ground, middle ground, middle ground. The answer is a twenty (laughs) percent. Come on! Oh yeah, it's estimated twenty percent of the world's supply of fresh water is held in the glaciers and icebergs in the Arctic. So at the end of the quiz, the champion supreme are Beth and Raven with two points. Hannah and Diva, commiserations. Yay. Put in a good stint, put in a good stint. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's our, our wonderful quiz. All wrapped up. Oh, that was a pun and I didn't even mean it to be a pun. Right now, you're with me, your partridge in a pear tree, Julia Ravy, and four extremely clued up calling scientists. Diva Eamon, Beth Singler, Hannah Wakeford and Raven Baxter, who are spreading Christmas cheer and sharing their wisdom by answering all the science questions on your Christmas wish list. We now have one last shake of the mystery present with the fourth and final clue of our Hoodolf the Red-Nosed Reindeer is making this sound competition. Right, we've got another clue now for our lovely mystery sound. So we had earlier this year, the world's oldest one of these turned 45. The largest one of these was 10.4 metres in circumference. And now another one for you. You might be able to have a fight with these on Mars. Hannah, do you think you know what is underneath our metaphorical Christmas tree? thought I did and that one's completely thrown me you might be able to fight with it is it like a hula hoop or something or what whatever those hula things are or a frisbee or something I don't know I was thinking it was like a floppy disc or a VHS because they were made in the mid 70s and I was like how big did they get (laughs) not 10 meters across (laughs) (laughs) huge Diva we're on to you now with COP26 in Glasgow last month climate change has been in the headlines of the news and at the forefront of many of our minds we know that human activity is having consequences on ocean life but Diva how is our activity impacting the deepest depths of the ocean? Yeah, so, you know, we often think that the deep sea is kind of like out of sight, out of mind and also out of reach. But that is absolutely not the case. I think I've been on 16 research cruises from Antarctica to the Mariana Trench to the middle of the Atlantic. And often they explore places of our parts of our planet that no one has been to before that moment. But nearly every single research cruise that I've been on we get down there and we find evidence of us before anyone has been there. And that might be a piece of our trash 
or it might be a trawl marks from a fishing net. It's often a, a really like soul crushing point that you're like, hey, no one's actually ever been here. No one's actually ever even seen what lives here. And yet here's our garbage. What's been the most striking thing that you've seen? So actually the big fin squid was spotted on this ship called the Noah Oceanus Explorer. But I was actually sailing with them in 2017 in the Gulf of Mexico. And we were exploring a part of the Gulf of Mexico, again, no one had been to. And a couple of days before, we'd been given two sonar targets to explore. And we'd explored one and it turned out to be a shipwreck. And it had all this like amazing life living on it. It really was just a, an amazing moment. And so it, you know, goes without saying that we were all super excited to explore this second sonar target. We touched down on the seafloor about a kilometer deep in the Gulf of Mexico. You could hear a pin drop in that control van because everybody was just almost holding their breath as to what they were going to see. And we started driving towards it. And before we knew it, you know, we were driving through a field of washing machines and dryers and chest freezers and fridges. And it turns out that sonar target that we had been given, which was 40 feet long, which we thought was a shipwreck, turned out it was a shipping container. And so here we were in this moment of like true exploration and it turned into this very surreal and very sad moment. That is, is so sad. Yeah. It's like the modern day shipwreck is our trash <laughs> just sort of being left at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? Because you can actually, uh, aren't shipwrecks just also our trash mm. in a way? Sometimes, depending on how they were lost. Some of them are, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so it's like, yeah, is that the modern day equivalent? <laughs> Fridges and toilets at the bottom of the ocean. So just how important are these deep sea creatures and their habitats to our ecosystems? The deep ocean is, as, as I said earlier, you know, it's, it's the largest part of the planet. It provides about 96% of all space in which life can live. So it's a significant place, right? And that huge size means that it plays some really important roles in ecosystem services that we rely on and that every and that all life on the planet relies on. So it sequesters carbon and absorbs heat, helping to regulate our climate, which now more than ever is important. It cycles nutrients. It is linked to fisheries that billions of people rely on. And all of these services that we rely on, are ultimately, it comes down to the animals that live in the deep sea that are responsible for these things. So this little deep sea worm that lives, you know, five kilometers down in the Atlantic may have a really important function that ultimately plays a big role in, for instance, locking away carbon for thousands, if not millions of years, for instance. But the problem is, is that because we've explored so little of it, for most of it, we can't answer that fundamental question of what lives there, much less questions about the ecology of these animals. You know, what does it eat? How does it reproduce? What role does it play? And if you can't answer those questions, it's a bit hard to put all the puzzle pieces together to understand these big ecosystem services and not just how important they are, but what's making them function in the way that they are. Yeah. So Hannah, back to another of our listeners' questions. We had this one come in from Alex. How can you tell how old a planet is? That's a really good question. And that's actually a really difficult thing for us to do. But when we're looking at alien planets, we can 
guess how old they are roughly by looking at how old their star is. So if we know how old their star is, then we kind of assume that the planet is somewhere around that time. On Earth, we actually use rocks to determine how old our planet is. And we compare that to meteorites that fall on the Earth, meteorites that come from space and they are showing us the building blocks of our solar system so if we can bear the ages of those rocks we can work out how old our planet is oh very nice and raven you did an an incredible song all about the different types of antibodies that our bodies can make and we have a question in from samira who asked is it possible to make vaccines against diseases which aren't infectious like cancer we have uh the hpv vaccine, human papillomavirus vaccine, which is a little different from like the vaccines that we normally hear about where scientists are taking pieces of dead viruses basically, or now genetic material and introducing it to bodies. The vaccines like the HPV vaccine, they target viruses that can cause cancer. So in this case, cervical cancer. So HPV is is a, a virus that can mutate cells and make them Uh, turn them from good cells into bad cells that can cause cancer. So going after that virus is a way that we can protect against uh, cancer. So yeah, we do have cancer vaccines. So Beth, when it comes to finding reliable information, we go to sources that we trust. If we want a diagnosis, we'll go to a doctor. If we want career advice, we may go to a colleague. As a collective, we really rely on trusting one another to maintain some form of compliance. So should we trust machines? Oh, yes. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying and discussing earlier about our fears about the robot uprising and the robot rebellion and our narratives about how all these things can go horribly wrong. Um, I think it's actually much more important that we have a conversation about how we trust the humans behind the machines. So there's no application at the moment of AI or robotics that isn't being deliberately implemented by humans given values and uh, incentives in particular directions by human beings. Every single recommendation system uh, behind the scenes and things like YouTube, if you go on social media, on Facebook, everything that is being selected for you is because a human decided that we would prioritize specific things. So we need to have a very strongly worded discussion about what kind of influence corporations and the individuals within them have on those decision-making algorithms. Uh, That, in a sense, pushes corporations into the realm of artificial agents. But again, we want to be sure that we know that there are still humans in the loop in both positive and negative ways. Definitely, because we use all our devices so much and we use them without thinking sometimes. And that is, you know, trust in a way. So, Diva, a last question for you. Recent news from Australia reported spawning of coloured coral on the Great Barrier Reef. Much of the coral on the reef was thought to have been subject to bleaching, which is an impact of high water temperatures. And Diva, we wanted to know what is bleaching? Why is it bad for coral? And Jack asked, why is ocean life so colourful? Okay, so basically corals are very sensitive to temperature. And of course, corals are animals, right? Let's start there. And so a lot of them have a symbiont, which um, is fundamental to keeping them alive. And when they get very, very hot, that symbiont can die. And once that happens, the coral will lose, will basically begin to lose its tissue and die and go, go white. 
Um, sometimes coral can be bleached and not fully die and it can come back, but often it's, it's much reduced from what it was. And that's really bad, of course, because corals are like this three-dimensional structure that is basically a home, a shelter, everything. You know, it's, a, it's such a key part of our shallow waters ecosystems and our and our coral reef ecosystems that to lose them would just be absolutely awful and it's thought that we may lose them by 2050 if we continue on this trajectory that we currently are with temp global temperatures warming. Um, in terms of why is ocean life so colorful? Well, I think there's so many different reasons but I'd like to sort of tweak the question a little bit and say, ask, you know, why is deep sea life colorful, right? Because that actually doesn't make sense because you're living in the dark. So why do you need color, right? And actually a lot of life in the deep ocean can be red or purple or mauve. And the reason for that is that as you go deeper in the ocean, your light only not only becomes less, but you actually lose wavelengths of light. And the first wavelength of light to be lost is red. And so that means that you actually can't see red from very, very shallow as you go deeper. And so that's why the ocean looks blue is because blue is one of the last wavelengths to be left. And so if you're red in the deep sea, because there's no red light down there or white light for that matter, it means that you're basically wearing an invisibility cloak. And so all of these animals are sort of shrouded in darkness. And then the other idea is that, you know, there are a lot of other animals that are that are white, that are black, that are yellow. I mean, really, it, it confounds you as to what, how the, and why there is so much color down in the deep sea. And one of the other main reasons is that actually the color has nothing to do with being seen. The color is just a byproduct of something else going on, right? So it just, it doesn't mean to be yellow. It doesn't mean to be purple. It just is that way because of something else within their body. So beautiful to look at. I'm very jealous you get to look at it on a very regular basis. The fire is slowly dying and soon we'll all be goodbying as we're nearing the end of the show. But before we give our sleigh bells a final ring, we need to unwrap our mystery sound. <laughs> So here is a final tinsel teaser for you. If you sped me up, you'd have to duck twice as fast. Final guesses. Duck? Like duck. Oh, okay. okay like, okay. that's my accent. I thought you said dark. Like a dark a spaceship. So I'm having some spaceship. Um, Just like thinking of something that you whirl over your head as well. And it's festive. It's festive. Oh, didn't you God. say the but, circumference was like 10.5 right? meters? The big, and it's 45 years old. The, the oldest biggest one, one is 10.5 meters and the oldest one is 45 years old. Something from the mid-70s. It's festive. It's festive, could be absolutely huge, but by the sounds of it, isn't always. And, and you, you could, said we could fight with them? <laughs> yeah, you can fight with anything on Mars. <laughs> Take something to Mars and fight. Why Mars is my question. Why Mars? What's yeah. what about Mars? Mars has got a really thin atmosphere. It's kind of pathetic. It's just a oh, little bit. Mars. Poor Mars. Like, oh. I agree. In a hurricane on Mars, you couldn't even fly a kite. Oh. So, oh. what is this? Poor Mars. <laughs> I have no idea. Shall I? 
Tell us the answer. Really? I don't know. I feel like we can get this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The answer is a snowball in slow-mo. What the hell? This is the most niche answer (laughs) I've ever heard. Who is supposed to guess that? (laughs) Wait, what was the bit about Mars again? You may be able to fight with these on Mars. This is ice. Oh, ice. You can make it. Have a snowball fight on Mars. There you go. We were too hung up on that one. Yeah, and someone made a snowball in 1976, and they've still got it in their freezer in a jar. We need to get out more. I know. I know. I literally was like, how can a snowball be 45 years old? Someone's got one in their freezer. There you go. If someone gets that. Yeah. So wait, so what's the definition? It's because the 10.5 circumference actually isn't that big. 10.5 meters? Yeah, that's not that big. big. What's the definition of a snowball? It has to be thrown. I think like a snowball. Or can it just be a ball? I reckon like made, yeah, like made into a ball, I think. No, because you've seen snowmen bigger than that. Yeah, right? Maybe it was thrown. If you go to Japan, like they make them like humongous snowmen. Maybe they use like mm. a catapult to like <laughs> trebuchet one a like, trebuchet. at a castle. Yeah. If you've got a trebuchet and a spaceship and you go to Mars, <laughs> we're having a, the, the best snowball fight ever. Let's well, the beauty there. of it is that the gravity is lower, so you could make a larger snowball. Also, the ice is CO2, which means that it has a much stronger adherence. So you could actually make a more structurally solid one. So you'd cause some, yeah. some damage if there was some atmosphere and gravity to cause it to fall better. Let's wear our helmets then and see you on Mars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we must leave it there. Thank you very much for listening and for sending in your questions. And thanks to our wonderful panel, Beth, Raven, Diva and Hannah. Next week, we will be getting down in the detail with nanotechnology. Join us to see how small things are making a big impact. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.